there's a, a lot of different ways to look at a developer's pipeline and their business model uh, that can make a big impact on how much pro- profitability they have and how much risk they have as well. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 35 of the Property Developer Podcast. Thanks for joining me. How are your projects going? How are you going? I hope everything is progressing just as you want it to. I've got a great discussion coming up in this episode as we catch up with former guest and funding whisperer Dan Holden from Holden Capital for an update on the lending landscape and some tips for making your capital work harder. I don't have too much to report on what I've been up to lately, except that I've been working on putting my team together for my tribunal hearing. I pretty much have the key players in place now and they are making their preparations for the hearing. I've also been getting in touch with some agents about potential sites that are around and what's happening in the markets, and I've been talking to potential investors about joint ventures and other kinds of projects. Okay, on to today's guest, Australia's number one commercial finance broker, Dan Holden. It's been more than a year since we spoke with Dan, and a lot has happened across the lending landscape in that time, and also with Dan's business, so we have a lot to catch up on. During this discussion, we talk about what's happening with construction finance lending, where sources of funding are coming from, and ways that you can make your capital work harder for you. I'm sure you'll enjoy this discussion, so here is Dan Holden. Dan Holden, welcome back to the Property Developer Podcast. Thanks, Justin. It's good to have you back. Cheers, mate. Now, I need to start off by asking you a different question to what I would normally ask my new guests. Yes. So, what's the best bottle of wine or drink that you've had lately? Uh, good question. Um, <laughs> probably, uh, I'd say it's uh, actually a scotch, um, which I stumbled across probably about a year ago uh, when I was in uh, Japan hu- hunting for money, um, and it's called uh, Yamazaki, and it was voted world number one scotch in um, 2016. And it's, uh, it's pretty good. So I'd say it would be that. Uh, and then coming back to Australia, there's only about three or four shops that stock it. So um, it's, uh, it's a bit of, bit of a, a discovery when you, when you can find it. And it's pretty delicious. All right. So now we know what bottle to buy you next time we want to impress you. Yes, indeed. Right. It's pretty, pretty yummy. Well, that's good. I was fortunate enough uh, in a former life to spend a week in Scotland with the master blenders of Johnny Walker learning about scotch and... Picked up a bit of a taste for it from there. Yeah, uh, it's particularly good during the uh, winter months we're having at the moment. Give right. you a bit of a uh, bit of bit of warmth. Oh, well, next time we catch up, we'll have to have a Scotch tasting session, Dan. Sounds good. I'm in. <laughs> now you were a guest on the show well over a year ago, episode 14, which was a ripper of an episode. If people haven't yep. heard that, they should go back and have a listen. And you've been pretty busy since then. You've uh, you enjoyed the podcast so much, you started up one of your own. I did, mate. I thought it was um, I thought it was a bit of a fun experience, and and I I guess realised that uh, I'm fortunate enough in in my role to have contact with some pretty cool people in the property industry, and I thought it'd be uh, a bit of fun to get them get them on the microphone and and try and tap them for uh, for some pearls of wisdom. So I've been doing that for the last well, yeah, I guess twelve months, um, and and enjoying it, which is the main thing. I've 
kind of taken it on as a bit of a, a thing where I said if I keep enjoying it, I'll keep doing it. If it becomes a bit of a chore, then uh, I should probably down tools and, and stick to what I'm good at. And uh, I've, I've actually really enjoyed it. So we had some pretty cool people, some uh, kind of, you know, uh, top national property developers on telling us about their journey. And uh, we've had the uh, the Lord Mayor of Brisbane. We've had Bernard Salt telling us about demographics and what what makes a um, uh, you know a city and a region grow. Um, so yeah, we've covered some pretty cool cool topics with some cool people. So it's been fun. And it's what's it called? The Constructive Finance Podcast. Spot on. Yep. Yep. So um, I think we've just cracked ten thousand downloads last month, which is pretty cool. That's very good. Well, it's a really good podcast. I listen to it uh, every episode, and I've promoted on the show so if people aren't listening to it they should subscribe because it is very good awesome thanks mate and apart from podcasting you've been picking up awards correct yeah we we're fortunate enough to win uh, number one commercial broker of the year uh, again for 2017 uh, so we won on the inaugural year in 2015 and 2016 and, and got the three peak in 2017 which is great so um, we've been uh, I guess pushing pretty hard the um the, the, the boundaries to be at the forefront of what we're doing. We've done a lot of travel overseas to help uh, expand our lender list and, and find more people that are willing to lend money to property developers in Australia. Uh, with the banks tightening up, it's, you've had to kind of innovate and push hard. Um, and so we've been doing that quite a bit and also obviously doing a fair bit in the education space in terms of the podcast. Um, you know, we've released a... Uh, uh, a, a finance dictionary we released about 12 months ago. Uh, every year we do a feature piece where we um, try and inform developers of what capital options are available to them. Um, and so, yeah, I guess trying to uh, push things a little bit harder, we've uh, been recognised, which is great. That's very exciting. Yes, for a financial institution or a, a finance-related business, you certainly do some very good marketing, I have to say. Yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of it comes from just that that place of, of wanting to educate developers um, with and share the knowledge that we've got so that when they come to us to finance a project that they're, I guess, asking uh, questions that we can quickly answer and, and help them to grow their business. So I think when you take a little bit more of a, a helicopter view of what we do, we actually help developers grow their business and, and we do that via, um, you know, helping them be sustainable with their capital um, and, you know, being able to invest in more than one project at a time and, and helping them grow what, the, what they're doing as opposed to just uh, trying to be, you know, save them 10 points on their, on their loan. We're trying to actually look at them at a holistic point of view. Um, so that's with, you know, education, sh- showing them other transactions that we've recently completed so that they can understand what's achievable uh, for their next project. Yeah, so well, and we're going to go through that shortly, but it seems like you've also opened up some other offices around the place. Yeah, so uh, probably about 12 months ago, we opened, opened an office in Sydney, uh, which is which is going well. We've got uh, two guys on the ground there, and then next month, uh, we open an office in Melbourne full-time. So we're fortunate we've got three of the Brisbane guys here who are ex-Melbourne, born and bred, and so they've got a long client list, uh, and we're already servicing Melbourne uh, doing a number of projects out of our Brisbane office. Um, and so now we'll have somebody full-time on the ground in Melbourne uh, and with the second person likely to join before uh, Christmas. And so that'll give us uh, Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne. Um, and we also, late last 2016, uh, opened an office in Hong Kong. 
Uh, and that was really off the back of um, my, I think I've, I've done seven trips uh, to Asia in the last 18 months, two years, um, searching for capital, searching for investors um, and regularly going up there to, you know, inform them about Australia and the real estate market here and, and how they can get involved. And so through that uh, constant um, travel and trips, we decided it's actually better to have somebody uh, full-time on the ground uh, over there to go and attend those meetings more regularly and to go and, you know, investigate new new sources of capital. Um, so, yeah, we've now got Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne in terms of the projects that we fund and then Hong Kong, uh, which services Singapore as well in terms of inbound capital um, to help fund the projects that we fund. So, yeah, bit of bit of growth in the last couple of years. And so how, are you, how are you finding the reception you were getting from potential investors or people with capital about the Australian market in general and then I guess more specifically within that Aussie market? So I think initially it was a little bit um, of reluctance because uh, the main question was, you know, why aren't the banks doing it? And that was probably their first, second and third question on any transaction we'd put forward. Um, and they really needed to see that it wasn't because of a massive market oversupply, that it was an actual regulatory, um, you know, and, and kind of systemic thing that was happening in, in our banking world. And so now it's definitely easier than it was two years ago when I first started going over there to get people's attention and, and, and to get them in a position where they're comfortable to write a cheque and get involved in financing a project. Uh, but initially, there was just a lot of, uh, you know, no one wants to be a pioneer and, and they, they'd much prefer to be investing um, in something that other people are investing in so that they're not going to get their um, their fingers burnt in something that because the, you know, so once they, that, once they actually got the comfort that projects were still being funded, um, you know, the world wasn't going to stop turning, uh, it's now a lot better uh, reception and, and the new people we're talking to now are a lot better. Uh, the, the journey from start to finish to them to actually writing a cheque is is definitely a lot shorter, which is great. And why are they more confident now? Because they, I think they can see that the you know the world is still going to keep turning. There's still projects that are that are happening. There's still some great success stories, um, you know, across Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne of projects still getting great sales rates and and selling out um, in, in pretty good time. So I think that there was the hesitation that. You know, it could have been a, an oversupply issue, and that's why the banks weren't funding these new projects. Um, we've seen a lot of cranes come down from, you know, I think uh, I call it as November 2015 was when APRA kind of um, put the, you know, uh, wanted to see the banks have less exposure to commercial property. And so we've now seen a lot of projects com- complete and repay uh, and extinguish those loans that were out at that time and, you know, the world's still turning and, and projects are still selling well. So I think now that we've kind of gone past that where you were holding your breath, hoping that um, the market didn't saturate or we had a massive market correction, we're now kind of, you know, back to business as usual and, and that's what people want is, um, you know, uh, consistency in, in you know, revenues and costs in sales rates so that they can take, take an accurate view of the you know the project that they're looking at funding so um, i think it's a much better place now than it was you know probably 12 15 months ago when we had a a big surge of projects that were coming through the 
the um, the end of the bank uh, funding kind of era. Yeah, well, last time we spoke, we talked about whether apartment geddon was going to happen, and it doesn't seem to have materialised. Why do you think that's the case? Uh, I think what it does reflect more so is that it wasn't, uh, you know, the the only contributing factor wasn't the market. There was uh, the underlying APRA um, kind of constraints that they were putting on the on the big banks, and um, you know, even now when the banks have got a lot of that money back. Uh, they're not running out to write big checks again because it's a you know it's it's a fundamental thing rather than just a market thing. Um, but it, but I guess in terms of Brisbane, um, you know, we saw potential oversupply issues. Uh, we've seen so far that it's been absorbed well. Settlements have gone well. Uh, we've seen rental uh, of the end product uh, going better than expected, and um, Sydney just goes from strength to strength. I, I, um, uh, you know, new projects launching in Sydney that we're seeing or involved in are just selling really well, which is great. Uh, Melbourne seems to have, um, you know, probably been the most recent potential casualty, and so far it hasn't. Um, you know, we haven't seen any major, major catastrophes, which is great. Um, I think the apartment market there is, you know, uh, fragile and probably has been for the last six to nine months, um, and the house and land market just seems to have gone for another surge, which is great. So I think overall there's a um, a lot less panic now than there was 12 months ago, which is great. And then what's the general update on lending at the moment? Yeah, so I think um, probably first point to, to cover there is that the banks are still doing deals. Uh, there's a lot of kind of scuttlebutt that the banks are shut and they're not lending to anyone and they're not, you know, they're not funding new projects. Um uh, I'm a bit of a defend, defender of the banks in a sense that we, we do see the transactions that they are doing. Um, our business uh, in the last 12 months has funded probably about 80 to $100 million of of construction debt out of the major banks. Um, so we're a bit of an advocate that they are still doing uh, what they need to do. Uh, it's just that they're doing it in a very select manner um, and they're probably, you know, rejecting nine out of ten things that come across their desk because they, they – have a restricted appetite in what they can do, um, but first and foremost is they are doing transactions, and we're settling, you know, probably one or two deals a month with the banks at the moment. So they're still there, but they're still being, um, I guess, over, uh, not overshadowed is the wrong word, but kind of um, managed in their appetite by APRA. APRA released a um, an open letter to the banks uh, about three months ago. It would have been about uh, May, early May. And they actually said we're still uh, wanting more housekeeping of the bank's balance sheet and exposure towards commercial property. Um, and so that has been a long process, um, you know, some 18 months uh, since November 2015. And, and they're still wanting to see more, um, I guess, strict uh, policy and approach to commercial property. Uh, and so as a result, um, like I was commenting before, we thought that once the um, – you know, kind of larger bulks of of capital that was deployed in 2015 was back and those cranes had come down and the projects had completed and the bank got their money back that they might come back with a bit more of an appetite. Um, that letter was probably timely to say, no, there it is a longer-term uh, requirement that the banks have less exposure to commercial property. 
Um, and when I say commercial property, I don't mean office buildings and that. I mean um, commercial use of money to fund property, um, as in not a consumer loan. So there's, you know, uh, coded consumer loans, which lend money to Murray Park Capital to buy the house. And then there's the commercial side of the bank, which lends to people to build buildings uh, or house and land packages or townhouses. But that's what they consider a commercial transaction. Oh, thank so, you. I was just about I, to ask you that question. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I think what uh, the result of all of that is, is that it, it really puts a bit of pressure on property developers uh, to either adopt their business model um, in one of two ways uh, or potentially get a little bit hamstrung and suffer the consequences. So um, the, the two ways that a developer might be able to adopt would be the one, using a lot more capital to fund their projects. Most banks are going to want 75% of cost um, provided well by their capital and 25% by uh, the developer themselves and generally speaking in cash. Um, and there's some some other ways that you can, you can manage that with mezzanine debt or preferred equity. But in a bank's... Um, uh, ideal world, the developer's putting in 25% of the total development cost in cash, um, and if they're covered, you know, majority by pre-sales. Uh, most of the time, it's 100%. Some smaller projects, it's a bit less if you've got a good story why. Um, so that's one option where you can adopt your business model is to use a lot more cash, uh, wait till you've got your pre-sales, and then start construction of your project. The other way is to adopt your business model via either taking on smaller projects that don't require pre-sales. So for pro- projects under, um, you know, kind of $3 million or $5 million of debt exposure, if you've got a good sponsor story, um, you can you can generally get funding without pre-sales from the banks, um, but it's very it's more rare than it, it was previously. So it's a, either adopting your business model via product so that you can change to do products that are, are less require have less requirement for pre-sales or it's to actually change the way you fund your projects and we're seeing a lot of developers doing that over the last 18 months um, and I guess looking at the actual cost of funding and and looking at how it can actually have it an advantage to them so uh, a property developer with you know 10 to 30 staff who's whose career who make make their living out of property development when you think about it, they're actually a property trader. So they make more money the more property they trade as opposed to collecting it and, and trying to keep it for five years to you know, create a, a you know, squeeze the, the lemon on the return. Property developers actually want to get in and out as quickly as possible. And if, if you're taking the, the first approach, which is to put in lots of capital and take your time on the project, that's fine. We've got some clients that are doing that. Um, it, it's just going to slow down your business. Um, and when you're a, you know, when you're in property development, you've got to look at what's slowing down my business. Is it finding development sites? Is it finding the right product? Is it, you know, getting council approvals? Is it, um, you know, negotiating with the builder, or, or is it finance? And looking at any of those five elements and saying, how can I expedite or un uh, or remove the bottleneck that I'm currently doing? So we see some developers do that. Um, they go, right, what's my current biggest constraint to me growing my business? And it might be planning. So I've seen a few developers who have uh, taken their whole business from New South Wales to Queensland um, or Melbourne 
because of the planning constraints in in New South Wales, where you know, in in their words, you've basically got to go to court to get an approval, or you've got to be happy to sit there and wait for 12, 18 months for the the approval to come through. So that's a bottleneck in your business, and so uh, some developers will go right. I'd much prefer to be delivering product in Queensland where I can get an approval if it's risk smart in seven days or, or if it's code accessible in you know three to four months. So looking at those bottlenecks or it might be uh, buying sites. So it got very competitive for a while there trying to buy development sites and so you saw some developers actually change or adopt the product that they're doing so that they were able to buy development sites in less competitive markets. So an example of that at the moment, you see a lot of developers who we're building residential product and now moving into uh, commercial assets, i.e. income-producing assets such as childcare centres, petrol stations, um, strip retail, shopping centres, and there seems to be a big uh, shift towards these sites. And as a result, we're seeing those sites now sell for really high uh, dollar figures that make the feasibilities basically not work. Um, you know, I've helped developers with finance on a few of these types of assets and and uh, also helped them bid on assets where I've looked at something before they put in their offer and we've gone, yep, here's what we should pay and then the asset ends up selling for, you know, an extra 600 grand or an extra million dollars and when we put that back to our feasibility, we go, it actually didn't make much profit but because there's such a big demand for those types of projects. So when you look at those kind of uh, potential bottlenecks, and you go, how can I manage my business so that I'm not constantly constrained by that one thing, buying sites, getting planning, um, or getting funding? And then you say, well, how can I adopt that? It might be changing product. It might be changing to doing smaller projects, or it might actually be doing bigger projects or something different. But it's actually adopting your business model so that you're no longer constrained by that. And I guess that you're no longer um, you know, chasing the same thing that a hundred other developers are chasing in the marketplace so that you've got something a little bit uh, unique or doing something a little bit differently. Um, and so we're seeing developers do that with, with construction funding. They're saying, how do I change my business model so that I'm no longer you know, sitting for two months for a bank approval or sitting here for four months to get those uh, pre-sales so I can start construction? And, and how does my business model look after that? Um, and so they're looking where we're, we're working with developers who actually take that approach and go, I want my business model to be nice and smooth, nice and consistent. You know, if, if I'm making $80,000 per townhouse I'm, and I've, you know, got a business of this size, I need to be doing 80 to 100 product a year. And to do that, I can't have these bottlenecks that hold me up for, you know, six, 12 months to get my uh, product in, in the right uh position at the right time, i.e. that they've got one project in diligence, one in planning, one in marketing, and and one or two under construction, one you know, one might be completing. So if you look at that and you go, right, each each project is, I don't know, fifteen townhouses or twenty townhouses and they've got this kind of conveyor belt of things, these projects that are coming through their pipeline. Some developers take that approach and they go, I've got my pipeline of projects, I've got my approach to business and they then manage that so that they don't have these hiccups, i.e. getting stuck in council for 18 months on one of their projects or, you know, being stuck in marketing waiting for that last sale to tick the bank approval. And so they, they look at ways that they can rework their pipeline, rework their business model and get the best out of what 
you know what they've got to work with. And so it's exciting working with those developers because they actually take that that kind of larger macro view um, and they take it to all elements of their project, not just funding, but you know finding sites, um, you know working with builders, delivering the product, getting the buyers, um, you know signed up on contracts, all of those things. So there's a there's a, a, a lot of different ways to look at a developer's pipeline and their business model. Uh, that can make a big impact on how much pro- profitability they have and how much risk they have as well. Yes, well, the issue of getting uh, a planning permit is certainly one that resonates with me at the moment, having to go to the planning tribunal to get a council decision reviewed, so I can fully understand how that can slow things down. Yeah, and it's, you know, and it's frustrating for them because they, you know, they've got this nice plan at the start of how it's all going to work and then you hit this hiccup, this bottleneck and it's uh, it's frustrating because it slows a lot of other things down. Indeed it does. Now, the we're going to go through some of the finance options that uh, some of the key finance options that you think are available out there for various types of projects um, so that people can get a bit of an idea of how they might be able to fund, fund their project. Yep, absolutely. So about uh, a couple of weeks ago, we released a, a product guide book, which goes through um, and which I think you and I spoke, we we're going to try and make a link available to people listening to the podcast. And so what it does is it goes through uh, a variety of different projects from at the start, settling a development site. Then the next section talks about a small residential project. So small might be um, you know, up to 20 townhouses it might be as small as five townhouses and how you would fund that project then we've got medium to large projects which we would typically call kind of 25 to 100 or 200 product in a single project or a single stage Uh, and then we actually go into mezzanine debt and preferred equity options and what kind of products in the market are available uh, currently for that Um, and then we talk about residual stock loans so on completion if you've got some product left over how would you finance against that to either repay construction debt or release some capital? Um, and then we've also got a section on commercial uh, investment loans, i.e. if you own a shopping centre and office building, um, how that market looks, the, the debt market, and how competitive that, that market is. And so the reason that we've done this is, is so that if a developer is looking at a particular project, so let's say it's a um, medium to large residential project, we've actually got a comparison between uh, the bank uh, what what options are available for the bank, roughly what the pricing is, roughly what the gearing is. And then we've also compared it to some of the um, offshore capital that we're seeing funding projects uh, at the moment. Um, and so the, the benefit of that is that somebody can sit down and go, right, this looks kind of like my project. I'm building, um, you know, 60 apartments and here's a project that Holden Capital have recently funded and here's what the cost of funds was and therefore they can work that into their model. Um, so we put that together and, and, and it's, a, it's a live document, so we will update it as the market evolves and, and as more capital comes into the market to fund more projects. Um, I think even you know, since we released this, there's probably another one or two lenders that have entered the market, um, which will you know, not materially affect what's available, but probably just give a couple of extra options. Um, and so hopefully that just explains to people what the options available are, i.e. settling a development site. Um, you know, sometimes that can be the first challenge. Uh, what capital is available? How do I fund it? How do I structure it? Um, so, yeah, we've, we've released that and, and hopefully gives people some insight into what's available. Um, what I wanted to talk about 
uh, today particularly was um, just the difference between mezzanine debt and preferred equity. Um, so the, the main criteria that I look at there is mezzanine debt is an extension of debt, i.e. If, if a bank's providing 75% of cost, we might top that up to 85% of cost, but it's a debt piece. It sits there secured as a mortgage, and the longer it takes, the longer it costs you to pay it back. It's, it's a pretty simplistic kind of um, structure in a sense that it's just extending the debt you've got. Whereas preferred equity has a, a very different approach and a very different flavour um, in terms of that we're, we're more contributing to the actual equity stack in the project. And so uh, a, a typical approach to a preferred equity joint venture, uh, which is talked about in page eight of our product guide, is actually um, an approach where, where we'll actually become a partner in the project. And the way that we'll look at that in terms of the capital stack of who's contributing what is um, we'll provide 80% of the capital, the developer provides 20% of the capital, they run the project, it's their project, uh, you know, they're calling the shots whilst, you know, obviously, whilst it's all going well, if we need to get involved, we will, but preferably they're an experienced developer who knows what they're doing and they're, they're running the project and we'll, we'll share the profit 50-50. Now, a, a developer might say, why would I give away half my profit? But you compare that to a developer putting in all of their cash, they, they're then putting in 25% of their cash and they get 100% of the profit. If you're doing an 80-20-50-50, they're then putting in 5% of the cash and getting half the profit. So it's it's participating in a project because they've got the skill set, they've found the, identified the project, demonstrated that the product is desirable and, and it's not pioneering, it's not crazy product that they're building. Um, they've de-risked the project to get it to a point where it's shovel ready, i.e. they've got the approvals, the permits, they've got the, the builder lined up uh, on a fixed price contract. They've got, you know, a valuation that shows that they can they can sell the product for X dollars in the marketplace. Um, and then they actually bring in external capital to help uh, advance that project and also to help them grow their business. Uh, and the reason I say that is that a, a developer's cash is always better used for higher risk activities. So if you look at a developer's um, pipeline of projects, like I was saying before, they've got, you know, one in diligence, one in planning, one in marketing, and maybe two under construction. The developer's capital is always best used in that early phase of identifying um, and, and structuring of, of the deal. And its uh, least uh, highest and best use is towards the tail end of a project. So hence why we will sometimes get involved in a project that's actually under construction. It might be six months into a 12-month build and we'll actually get involved, uh, release that developer's equity and provide that as either a mezzanine debt or preferred equity uh, investment into the deal so that developer can, uh, I guess, withdraw their capital from that project to then put back into the start of the funnel, the, the start of the pipeline of their projects. And so the reason being is that uh, let's say the developer had t $2 million of capital in the project uh, for a round number. So the bank might provide $6 million. The developer's got $2 million in there being um, $25, $75 contribution. The developer then needs a $1 million to go and do, um, you know, 
to get a early phase project up and running. So rather than us investing a million dollars into that project, which has still got a lot of risk on the table, um, we're better off investing in the project that is very de-risked, i.e. the, the basement's already been uh, dealt with, the construction's already well advanced, there's probably already some pre-sales in place. And us getting involved in that project, we might, for example, charge only, I don't know, 20 25% per annum on that million dollars that we invest into that project and limited to only that project that that developer can then withdraw and put back into the start of their project pipeline, which would then earn them a much better return than 20% per annum. And so the developer's cash should be used in that early phase and then as the project progresses and de-risks, the developers should be looking for uh, external capital to come in and that frees up their cash to go and do the more uh, high-risk, high-return activities in in their their pipeline. Um, So looking back at those structures of how you do that, that would be either mezzanine debt, i.e. extending the debt in your project, or preferred equity and doing a, a joint venture with a capital partner that will let will then let you be the developer and let you do what you're good at, um, and then free up capital for you to go and keep your project pipeline uh, progressing. And what sort of period of time, Dan, would that be effective for to use that kind of facility to pull your money out? Generally speaking, it's it's from construction commencement so um, us getting involved in a project which the site's just settled they may or may not have planning approval the cost of that capital is substantially different than if they've uh, you know already got a fixed price construction contract in place they might have sold 30 percent of the product uh, in advance of starting construction that's a substantially different risk profile for us and the reward that we need for taking that investment will be substantially lower and so the later stage that a developer can get uh, external capital involved in a project, the lower the, the cost to them because the lower the reward we need to justify because we're taking less risk. So to say that another way, if we're getting involved in a project, let's say it's, I don't know, 25 apartments and there's only, you know, five months to go on construction, so our money's only going to be out there for six or seven months until it gets repaid, you know, the basement's already been done. The structure's substantially com- complete. Um, we've got a good understanding of, of any contingencies or cost overruns that are, have arisen. Uh, you know, there's probably, I don't know, 10 or 12 pre-sales at hand so we can see our exit very clearly that those sales are going to come in and, and refinance maybe the senior bank and then they get a, a little residual stock loan to pay out our money uh, and then away they go. And so us, the visibility of line of sight for us to see our repayment there uh, is very simple. Whereas when we're getting involved in a project that hasn't yet got, launched its marketing, you know, doesn't does or doesn't have approval, you know, you've you've got a, a an email from your builder saying it should cost roughly this. Is is there's a lot more risk on the table, and therefore we need to charge, you know, appropriately. Um, but and, and then you look at another uh, extreme of that is trying to get external capital involved to help you pay a deposit on a site that you don't have planning, you don't have construction numbers firmed up, you know, you don't have a valuer agreeing with the GRs that you've put in your fees out. You know, the risk on the table there for us is huge. Um, so it's it's using external capital when you've 
uh, I guess, most uh, added value and most um, uh, demonstrated your skill set of de-risking a project, which is generally later in the project. And then the cost of capital to the developer will be much lower. And the safety for us is much, because the safety for us is higher, therefore we don't have to charge as much for that money coming into the project. And so back to that pipeline, that developer's pipeline of the projects they're working on, their money should be used. Highest and best use of their money is that early phase, highest risk, highest return, and, and managing it through that phase of de-risking it through planning, through construction, cost being firm, through market um, uh, firming up the, the GRs in the project and, and maybe getting some pre-sales and then bringing in external capital closer to completion where it costs them the, the best uh, return on their dollar. And so to put that into some actual metrics, some actual numbers, a developer's IRR on their money should be at or above about 100%. So if you're putting money into a project and you're borrowing from the bank at 5.5% and you're putting in... Uh, you know, let's say that example before you're putting in two million, and you're only getting a developer's IRR of you know 30% per annum, then that's great if that's your business model, and and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but a lot of the developers that I work with, their IRR is generally speaking, uh, you know, triple that. It's it's at a, it's at 100 or or higher. Uh, sometimes it's at you know 200 plus because they're using their money in the high risk phase then they're bringing it to a shovel-ready position and then they're bringing an external capital at a pretty low cost. Like some people might say 20% per annum sounds high, but compared to what your money should be making, you're actually then offsetting or selling down that risk to somebody else to then put that money back into the early phase of your pipeline. And so as a result, their IRR on their money is you know, fairly high because they're using other people's money creatively to get their project pipeline uh, working well, uh, but only at the right time. So, you know, high leverage isn't great unless you've de-risked it to a point where it makes sense. And then what about site acquisition? How are, how are these elite developers managing to acquire the sites in that highest risk phase? So most of them, uh, well, it, it, there's actually a number of different ways. I've worked with some developers who settle a site in cash. They wait till they get the project literally shovel ready as in with pre-sales and everything and then they you know like a vacuum withdraw all and all and sometimes even more than their actual cash contribution at the start um, and so they'll use pretty much you know call it 90 percent of their bank will be just in pre-construction phase and then they you know and that's that's driving it pretty hard right bringing in complete uh funding a project with totally with external capital um, but if they if they understand the developer's business model and they understand how capital works they actually can drive their business that hard that they're doing a project with completely external capital um, and you know we've funded a, a multiple of projects that are that are structured that way um, because we can see that the developer has cash he's got a good track record he's delivered uh, he's de-risked the project uh, to such a point that we're comfortable being involved in that project to that uh, position of gearing and and we can see that he's actually withdrawing that money to go and you know, secure the next project and get it to the same uh, shovel-ready position. Um, so it, how developers settled their site might be, you know, uh, they might be borrowing from a bank but the LVR is going to be pretty low. They're going to have to demonstrate serviceability 
Um, and they're going to have to obviously jump through some hoops to get that because most banks can, you know, uh, tell when it's a development site and they're not buying a, um, you know, 40-year-old dilapidated house because it's a good investment. And so when the banks pick that up, you know, if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's probably a duck, and the banks generally pick that up. Um, and so the alternative there is to use private money, which, which we provide on development sites um, anywhere from... 50 to 70, 75% LVR. Um, in some cases, we've actually 100% LVR on a development site because we can see that the the uplift is is imminent and that we can take a position on the on the uh, the exit um, so that we're comfortable to be involved in that. Um, so yeah, there's a number of different ways that developers can settle that initial development site. Some developers uh, end up paying more to the landowner so that they don't have to settle until it's got approval. That's fine. Um, but it's it's you know uh, a negotiation uh, up front to, to get control of that. So um, yeah, we we generally get involved once the developers actually got the site, um, got the the idea, um, and then comes to us and says, "This is what I want to do. What options are available to me?" And then we'll, based on their feasibility, we'll uh, package up some different options to say, you know, here's here's straight bank debt. Here's a uh, a mixture of, of debt being debt and mes equity, that i.e. you're extending your debt further. Um, and here's an option where we will get involved as a joint venture partner to um, to help you deliver that project. Um, so, yeah, we'll generally get involved in that early phase. And, and for repeat clients, we'll get involved even when they're making offers on sites because if you're a developer going out and you're going to buy a development site for, for 30 apartments, it, it makes a big difference if you need to put in Three million to do that, or one million, mm-hmm. in terms of your actual cash contribution day one to get that project happening. You, you might look at it and go, if I've got to put in three million to make, uh, you know, three million in eighteen months' time, that's great. But if I then have to put in one million to make two point two million in eighteen months' time, that might make the project more attractive or less attractive to know that you've got how much capital you've got to put in. So we'll. Uh, you know, we're often involved in, in developers making uh, offers to purchase on sites because they want to understand how much cash they've got to put into that project to get it fully funded, completed, and how much profit they're going to get back at the end. And so building up that base of cash, is that just something that developers would do over time? They build up to have that cash at hand? Um, yeah, generally speaking, it's, it's you know what capital base are they working with right now? And how are they, you know, what return are they getting on their money right now? So your your money sitting in a project for the next twelve months until completion isn't the, the highest and best use of your capital, as I've, I've mentioned before. And so, you know, how could you better utilise that capital to progress your next project, to bring forward a project? You might have a project that's sitting there because it needs, you know. Three million to get underway, and your money's tied up in another project, and you've got to wait till that completes, titles are issued, and settlements happen for you to get your money and and commence that project. So there's there's other ways to be able to bring projects on board, board earlier. Um, but back to your question, it's looking at how much capital you've actually got in your business right now. You know, you might have two projects underway or four projects underway. How much of how much actual cash is in in that project? So if you look at your uh, you know, balance sheet or, or business kind of model and sit down and go, you know, how much is actually there and how can I make sure that has the highest and best use for me as a property developer? 
Uh, and so that that's the the question to start with, and then and then look at strategies to actually get that um, earning the best return and and um, you know helping you grow your business. And so that's obviously something that you offer to your clients. What kind of developer would you be looking for as someone who would be good to work with? Um, so most. Uh, of the clients that we work with are what I would call middle market private entrepreneurial property developers, um, being that they earn their income from uh, building, developing, trading property, um, and that they're you know they want to grow their business. You know, we've got some clients who are at the the later stages in their life; they're not trying to grow their business; they're just trying to deliver product, and you know they they look at their business model that they make eighty, hundred thousand per townhouse, and that they want to deliver. You know, forty product a year, and that's their their. You know, that that, that that's how much they want uh, to to get them through the last couple of years of their working life. They go, yep, this is what I want, and that's their business model, and that's great that they understand it. Um, I think there's unfortunately a few people that we do meet in the early phase of of working with them, and and they they don't know that number. They don't know, you know, how much of their own capital they've got in their business model and how hard it's working, and they don't know what their you know, their simplistic approach to their annual pipeline looks like, you know, how many how many product is it, how much profit do you make per product, you know, what are your overheads, how many staff have you got? Well, that's, you know, straight away if you've got, you know, eight staff, you're, you're looking down the barrel of, you know, over a million bucks a year in overheads in office costs and everything. So if you're making 80000 per townhouse in profit, um, you know how much, how many product do you have to do to actually make a profit, and and end have capital to grow the business next year, so that you're actually growing rather than going backwards. Um, so these are all questions, I guess, that uh, you know most people would look at in starting a business. Um, but I think as as businesses evolve uh, and property developers kind of grow in size, sometimes they forget to do that. That business model check to to say what what is what does next year look like? What do the next three years look like? And how much capital do we need to actually make that happen? And I know that we've spoken in the past, and your one of your suggestions around developers maintain, uh, keeping a lid on their costs is not to hire people to try and use consultants wherever possible. But at what sort of size would you start to think about hiring staff? Um. I'm not sure. I mean, I've seen some pretty successful guys who run, you know, 300 lot land estates and they've got literally one staff member, um, uh, you know. So it, 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 there isn't probably a, a catch-all answer for that one. Um, but, I, you know, I just look at what they need to deliver that and what skill sets they need to be able to deliver the project. And, and when you look at your ideal business model and say, right, I want to have, you know, Four to five projects on the go at any one point. Um, you know, one in one in DD, one in planning, two in construction. Uh, how much capital does that require, and how many man hours does that require to deliver? And and what skill sets do I what skill sets don't I have that I might need to bolt on? Can I bring them in as a consultant, and therefore it's a more of a success based uh, involvement, and you can use them when you need them, and and um, you know they've got other things to do whilst you're not uh, they're not working for you, uh, or is it is it something that's big enough that you need them in house and and you know build that um, that team? So uh, 
Uh, yeah, there's probably not a catch-all answer, but I'd say it's, it's working back from your business model, your ideal business model, working back into what you need to deliver that. Yeah, no, that's good advice. Uh, can you give us a bit of a recap on some of what the sponsor criteria is for lenders at the moment? Yeah, so uh, just to look at, I guess, the three main elements is our sponsor story, market, and project, met- project metrics. So sponsor story is all about what is their track record, have they done it before, and, and very importantly, have they made mistakes? If a developer says, I've never made a mistake, I've never used a centre of my contingency, um, it, it's a little bit boring. We like to hear that people have had uh, issues because every project seems to have some kind of obstacle that pops up from, from left field. Um, so so <laughs> I can't talk about a project that doesn't have some issues, Dan. Exactly. So, you, you know, we want to hear that they're, they're human and that they had this issue arise and they didn't know how to solve it, but they still solved it and they managed to get a solution. Um, we also look at in the sponsor story who have they borrowed from before and how did that go. Um, the other one, which is critical, is do they have the financial capacity to find 500 grand if something goes wrong? You know, what, what is their financial position and, and, and how do they find a, a chunk of money to fix a problem if it pops up? Then the next one is is uh, market. And the most basic kind of question there is, is there an actual need for this product or is it being driven by the fact that the developer saw the site for sale in the prime site section of the newspaper and they got excited and, and they paid the most on the day? Um, or are, are they a guru? Is their business model to be a, a, a guru in one particular geographic location and know that product inside out? They know their costs inside out, their GRs, their headworks costs. They know their, you know, their, the plot ratios and the GFA on every site that they've looked at. Um, are, are they taking that approach to how they're going to, uh, deliver projects. The third one is just the actual projects me- metrics themselves. So, what is the return on cost? Um, you know, is there any land uplift uh, generated because of the fact that they got the approval, or did they pay full tote on the the actual development site so they didn't have to settle it until uh, they got all all of that in a row? That's an interesting one for us to understand. Um, and and it, is there any unique site issues resulting in higher cost? So, you might have bought the land for half of market value, but then you've got to spend, you know, more than that in civils and, and, and bulk earthworks to get it to an actual, um, you know, uh, pad site that's ready for construction. So little things like that that we see sometimes um, can really affect the approach on a, on a project. So uh, sponsor story, market, and then just some general project metrics that we look at. There's a lot of factors outside of that to consider. But the basic ones, sponsor market and project metrics, need to be very clear so that we can answer them in as few words as possible and just just keep it simple, really. Okay. And what have you learned about the market and the industry in the past 12 months? Um, I guess probably... uh, That's a good question. Um, I guess probably that there are many different ways to structure a deal. Uh, I think... Uh, I've been doing this for 11 years now, and I think when it was a very bank-dominated market uh, in terms of the way that we funded projects, we became very vanilla in the way that we funded uh, or solved the funding solution for a developer. So it became a marketplace that was very driven by um, banks were either at 75 or 80% of cost, they were either at 50 or 100% of debt cover, and the pricing was kind of the pricing. It wasn't 
there wasn't a lot of levers that you or variables that you could push or pull to get a better outcome for the project. Whereas when you uh, and, and at the moment, we're now doing about 75 or 80% of our volume in private capital. Uh, there's a number of different ways that you can structure a deal um, to either start sooner and therefore that has a better IRR for the developer um, or it might be you know, playing with uh, MES or PREF equity to get a better outcome. So I think probably the biggest learning for me in the past maybe 12, 18 months has just been that there's a number of different options available to fund a project, which we may have um, uh, kind of previously not not been as open-minded to. And, and when I say open-minded, I mean you know, developers and the way that they fund their projects. So I think there's some pretty exciting stuff happening um, at the moment. And, you know, being involved, particularly with, with some of these commercial projects where we're, you know, doing things like... Um, uh, putting investors in on a fund-through basis so that they own the asset on completion. The developer's got less than no money in the deal. Uh, doing things where, you know, we're involved in service stations or medical centres where we're actually putting in 100% of TDC. Uh, so the developer, again, is, um, you know, in, involved in that project and they've used their capital at the early phase to get it to a shovel-ready point. And then we will actually come in and, and 100% fund that project. That then frees the developer's cash up to go and start the next project and get that shovel ready. So being able to be a little bit more, uh, I think the the restraint of bank money has made developers uh, open their mind a little bit to different structures. That's what I've learned. And so just if with those examples where, the, where you're providing the 100% of total development costs, would you still have the developer um, charging a development management fee? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I definitely open to that. Um, and depending on the size of their team or or how they're actually delivering that, is the approach that we'll take um, on what we're comfortable for them getting. So, if if they're a one man band and they're charging fifty grand a month, we we're not going to be that comfortable. Um, but if you know if if it's in proportion with what they're actually doing, then that's no problem at all. They've got you know they've got bills to pay, they've got staff wages to pay, they've got. Uh, or a consultant that they have to pay, we're, we're fine with that. All right. And I think you've, you've kind of touched on this through your the points that you've raised, but which developers or what kind of developers are you seeing succeeding in the current environment? Uh, I would definitely say that there's some successful people who have gone from building, you know, 50 apartment projects um, and, and a couple of them a year to now doing some pretty cool uh, retail um, you know, service station, childcare, shopping centre type projects um, and taking a view on them that they'll build one, keep one and that'll g- then generate, you know, passive cash flow for them and, and again, help them grow their business. Um, and I've also seen some uh, developers actually downsize the scale of projects they're doing, uh, like I was saying before, to adopt into adopt their business model into something that has less bottlenecks and less constraints. Um, so that might be, you know, they were doing a 50 apartment project and now they're doing 24 apartment because it's now three-storey walk-up with no basement and it only costs them, you know, 210000 per product instead of doing eight storeys where it costs you 310000 per product and takes, you know, 15 months instead of 10 months. So things like that where people can tweak their business model a little bit to um, get more consistency out of their pipeline uh, I think is what I would consider a successful developer in the current market. And well, I think you were saying that the smaller boutique projects are higher on the radar for lenders? 
Well, I think they are because of, like I was saying, that they're lower risk, um, they're shorter time frame. You've got less exposure to cost escalation. Um, you've got less less exposure to market um, forces, and uh, you're you're just generally in and out quicker. Um, you'll also find, uh, you know, if we looked at a feasibility of a 20 apartment project versus a 200 apartment project, the developer's IRR is actually better, and their risk is actually lower. Um, but like I say, depending on what your optimum business model looks like, if you've got a certain, you know, um, profitability that you want to be hitting, you, you might have to take a lot of 20-unit projects on board to to deliver the same outcome. So it is uh, dependent on on what your uh, approach to business is. But I, I see some pretty cool projects in that um, 15 to 25 product space it might be landlots, townhouses, or apartments, um, where there's some guys doing some pretty cool stuff and and really growing their business um, with uh, a lower risk profile than than you know they may have previously. Oh, well, that's good because that's where I slot right in, Dan. Nice one. <laughs> now, you've given us heaps of tips, but what would you say your top tip for developers out there who really want to take their business to the next level? I think it's, you know, sit down. What is your optimum business model? What is the size of it? Um, how does it look? Uh, you know, what product are you particularly passionate about? Um, and, you know, how are you going to... Uh, reverse engineer that back into what you do in your daily business. So, you know, if it's you want to make uh, three million a year profit, and you know you're making eighty to one hundred thousand product per profit per product, how many products you have to deliver, how much risk you have to take, um, and and how many projects do you need in your pipeline at any one point in time to to actually deliver that outcome? So, I think that's probably um, the, the the takeaway. I'd I'd suggest people. Just sitting down, having a look at that, and 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 also doing it every year, so that because businesses will change. I, I remember working with some businesses kind of three or four years ago, and what they're doing now is is different because they've adopted their business model. So, just being a, a flexible and um, you know being, I guess, taking a view that uh, what works today might not work tomorrow, uh, and so you need to adapt that. And whether that's the way you buy sites, the way you build them, the way you fund them. It's being able to adapt so that you get the outcome you want. Very good. All right, well, let's change gears a little bit now. If you could sit down for dinner with any three people, alive or dead, who would they be and why? Oh, crikey. Um, that is a very good question. I'll tell you what, one, uh, one of them would be Simon Sinek, um, who's a uh, author and uh, kind of ideas guy. Um, he wrote the book Start With Why? Correct, correct. Um, uh, I guess Tim Ferriss would be another one. He's got a really interesting approach to to business and business models um, and and uh, good good podcast guy. I listened to that for uh, for quite a while. Um, uh uh, and I'll tell you what the other one would be is a guy called Scott Pape, who's an Australian guy. I just read his book twice called uh, The Barefoot Investor. Um, and it, he just has a nice simplistic approach to finance, personal finance models. Um, and I've I've given that book, I, I bought it two weeks ago when I was on holidays and I've already read it twice and I've already given it to a few of my mates uh, and, and family members saying you have to read this. So um, I reckon he'd be an interesting guy to have a chat with. 
I've seen that book on the shelves at the bookstore. Get it. Read it. It's oh. awesome. All right. I'll definitely have to pick that up. All right, Dan. Well, thanks so much for sharing all that information with us today. If people want to find out more about Holden Capital, where should they go? Well, definitely that product guide that we just released is a good uh, a good thing to have a look through. There's a bit of um, education in that. Um, and we also have a, a fine, construction finance dictionary, which is available um, on our website, and, and hopefully you can make the link available uh, just to help people better understand uh, the terminology, and then that way they um, have a more educated approach to finance. So that will be the two places. All right. Yeah, we'll definitely provide a link to that guide, and I would encourage people to go to your website, which is holdencapital.com.au. There's heaps of really terrific resources for developers and sign up to your mailing list because you send out really good information when, like the guides when they become available. And, of course, listen to the podcast, Constructive Finance yep. Podcast. Yep. Excellent. Thanks for your time, Justin. All Have right, Dan. Always good to talk. Cheers, mate. Talk See you later. There you go. Another fascinating chat with Australia's number one commercial finance broker. I always enjoy speaking with Dan as he shares plenty of gold to help developers take their business to the next level. I'm sure you picked up lots of ideas from that conversation, as I know I did. And here's three things that resonated with me. One, have you identified your business model? Do you know what type of developing business model you have? Do you build townhouses, apartments, house and land packages? What's your profit margin per unit? How many units do you need to produce each year to generate the revenue and profit that you want? Are you looking to switch categories? These are all questions that would be good to have answers to, because once you understand what you do, you can set about on making it happen. Two, are you harnessing the power of your capital? Making your money work harder can sound like a cliche, but in such a capital-intensive business as property developing, it pays to look at ways to recycle your money quicker and generate more returns. This may mean looking beyond traditional bank finance, looking beyond project to project, and also beyond the cheapest funding option out there. This might be a significant shift in thinking as you move from cheapest money to a model that may create a higher velocity of cash flow. 3. Be ready to change and adapt to the marketplace. The property market is always going to be dynamic. The economy will ebb and flow, sentiment will change, and regulation and policies will flex. So you can count on change. A change in the market can be an opportunity to switch product offering, move into different sectors, or perhaps a new market altogether, whether that is interstate or overseas. So give some thought to what moves you could make if things tightened up in your segment of the market. Alright, we are just about at the end of episode 35. Don't forget you can find me on Instagram and Facebook by searching for Property Developer Podcast. And remember, you can find all the past episodes of the show over at www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com. You can listen to the previous conversation I had with Dan Holden, which is episode 14. And if you want more finance tips, then tune in to episode 28 with Matthew Royal. Thanks again for listening in, and until next time... May your capital start generating some serious velocity and providing exceptional returns. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. 
For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.